0: Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And we're back. It's been raining all night listening to it for most of the night because I can't sleep which is not all that unusual it's never been that unusual but there is I think a particular kind of restlessness that happens when you're in the midst of a deep uncertainty about things and it I think it's pretty clear to everyone that we're in the midst of extremely uncertain times. And there's a natural tendency in the midst of that feeling to want to address it. And so a lot of the talk that's going on are uh, efforts to find some orientation within the midst of the various crises happening. But I think recently we've kind of hit the point where a lot of those discussions are falling rather flat. And the best of the ones that I've heard are essentially declaring their inability to really get a grip on what's going on. Maybe that's why the poet said that these periods are characterized with the worst having passionate intensity and the best lacking purpose. I don't remember the specific quote. As usual. So again, confronted with the basic question, how do we proceed from here? Now, with regards to this specific podcast, I've been mentioning from time to time various ideas about whether this effort should continue or not, and lately I've been thinking, you know, maybe this season is coming to a close and it's time to start a new season. But also I don't really have an interest in flogging the same horse over and over again, and so the previous episode uh, was an effort to open this up to some new directions and uh, I'm pleased to uh, see some positive response to that and thank you to those of you who have decided to uh, chip in a little bit and become a subscriber on uh, Patreon and uh, one person even signed up on Substack which is wonderful and um, somewhat affirming But of course, uh, I don't expect this to become a money-making venture. I don't really expect it to do anything in particular. My hope is that it will serve somewhat the same function as some of the things which helped me to see the world in a different light. I think it's fair to say that for most of my life, I was searching for some solution to a problem, and the problem was that nothing made sense. And over the course of time, through various avenues, usually through some kind of bit of information that I'd run across, things gradually started to come together into a coherent, or at least somewhat coherent, picture. Now, I may or may not be able to adequately describe what that is, but that doesn't change the fact that I at least have, on a, on a semi-regular basis, a sense of kind of consistent experience and, and the things which are occurring, I can, I can make into some sense even the things which appear to be outrageous or, you know, frighteningly new, let's say. So, certainly, there are plenty of instances of the kind of behavior that we see happening on the world stage that's outrageous. But within the context of the kind of civilization that we have, which has been one that's all about distinguishing oneself in one way or another. So in some way it's about aspiration and standing out from the crowd. And so it would make sense that outrageous things would occur. Because you can only stand out from the crowd with a non-outrageous tactic for so long. Once all of the provocative things have been said, well, then they have to be done in order to get a sufficient number of likes. And then, you know, that also explains the kind of general novelty push technologically but the, the basis of all of that is likely the requirement for us to find something new because the way that we're doing it won't work. So when you back yourself into a corner by exploiting resource to the point that it can no longer sustain the population you presently have, well, then you have to come up with some new way of doing things. And so that's a driver for novelty. So you could say that the imbalance with nature is really what's going on here. But now, there's a tendency to want to feel that, well, we're an unnatural thing then. And we're doing this incredible damage to the natural world. And of course, it does seem to be true. But on the other hand, isn't that basically what has happened in the major transitions of of Earth life in the past? We've hit crises on the planet many times. And it's basically for the same reason. It's because living things are adapted to a particular set of circumstances. But living things are continually changing the circumstances. That's what we do. We're like a fire that basically burns the fuel that it requires... And then that fuel is spent. It gets at least converted into some other form. And then we have to innovate and come up with some new way of exploiting whatever the heck it is that's left. And that's been basically one of the main themes that I've been attempting to introduce from time to time in the conversations and sometimes in these self-indulgent monologues, that's what we see in the ideas of Lynn Margulis, who held that in the ancient bacterial world, the Archaea, I believe, is how it's pronounced, that the uh, the effluence that is the oxygen we're breathing right now exerted evolutionary pressures which caused that bacteria to innovate and it innovated by essentially turning on itself becoming recursive i would maintain that that's basically what's going on now if you want to frame all the stuff that's going on, you know, of course, the devil's in the details and we can all argue about what's going on with this election and what's going on with the pandemic, what's going on with geopolitics. I mean, good luck unraveling all that stuff. That's all I could say. But on some general level, what we could say is that the conflicts are heating up, there's an incredible amount of tension, and everyone is deeply concerned because they feel that the basis for their lives, and it's not just feeling it, because the basis of their lives is at threat. That's basically what it is. So one of the things I've been wondering lately is, in the course of evolutionary history, when cell collectives were coming together and you had the formation of these organisms, you could say where cells started to specialize and they became managed by these neural networks. Was there a point where a deal was made, kind of like a social contract, where the cells would accept a less favorable set of circumstances in exchange for some assurances that some basic needs would be met. In other words... Was there basically like a governmental negotiation between the population of cells and the neural networks that managed them? Because it seems like that's basically what's going on now. We're all being managed by these networks, by the media. And in particular, by this, uh, this internet y web thing. And, you know, that web is basically the connective between all the cells in the body. And we are now kind of a a semi-global organism, if you like, that's being managed. But not in one location. So it's really not yet a global organism, but it's a global phenomena. There are a number of large entities managing... ...various intersecting population groups. And I think that we're about to strike a deal. And it may not be a great deal for anyone... ...but it might be better than not striking a deal. Of course, once a deal is struck... ...in some respects... Every time the population accepts less power, it has less negotiating power. And it seems that that's been going on now for many generations. But when you consider the horrors of what happens when we don't accept these deals, it's understandable why we would continue to make them. And in particular, where we get to the point where the innovation in the technology is so intense that the consequences for not playing by the rules being established by the powers that be are so great, not just to ourselves, but to kind of everything, really. You know just one technology like the atomic bomb, I think really pretty much sums up the situation that we're in because you know all the people who would hearken back to the noble age where human beings would stand up for their own rights and and uh and fight tyranny, literally fight it, right. good luck with that you know a lot of a lot of people on the right complain about the uh, the postmodernist kind of marxist point of view that is basically i think their criticism is essentially that they'll do anything for power and that All the games being played with the language and all that kind of stuff are basically a power play. And, yeah, obviously that's true, right? But that's the thing about power, is that it will assert itself. And if it's threatened in any kind of existential way, (laughs) it will assert itself in a very existential way. Which is to say, like, if people complain, well, then they'll just run a bunch of interference. But if people actually start doing something, the gloves come off. And now, when the gloves come off, the potential for worldwide destruction is real. you know in the, in the past the battles i think were so horrible even before the bomb that nature would would fundamentally suffer that the horror of all of the things going on would have a basic imprint on the on the psyche of all living things maybe a on God itself. And that horror, you know, let's say, when we're talking about God, we're thinking of this, as Patanjali says, universal yet particular indweller, the one that sees through all of the eyes, like Brahma sleeping, dreaming everything that's happening. And when the dream has a war inside of it that's, that's horrific to everything because no one can escape it. Not even the animals, not even the plants. Nothing can really escape when a huge conflict starts to occur. Because even where there isn't the most intense fighting, let's say there's a peaceful area, everyone is still suffering from it. And all of the supply chains are interrupted. And so all of the farm animals are also in distress. And people start to become desperate, and they go out and exert more pressures on what remains of the natural world, the wild world. So it's just a gigantic pressure-suffering misery that occurs when this state of being happens on the planet. And yeah, maybe, okay, there's some pockets that, that don't get that kind of pressure here and there, but, you know, it was a world war. It really was a world war. And now the world is even more interdependent. And we're starting to see what happens when supply chains get disrupted. So framing all of this within the context of deep evolutionary time, at least it relieves us of the sense that that this is unprecedented. It relieves us of the sense that it's unnatural. It relieves us of the sense that you know, particularly when we think about the accumulation of factors that brought us to this point, to some extent it relieves us of the sense that it wasn't inevitable. Like we could argue about whether different decisions could have been made along the way, but having arrived at this point, well, those decisions weren't made, and here we are. So at the very least... A broader sense of things can help us to separate from some of the anxieties, particularly that urgent sense that this is terribly wrong, we have to do something about it, what are we going to do? It's, it's these particular people's fault. It's like, okay, tell me who exactly is the one who's at fault for bringing humanity to the point where over the course of centuries of conflict we developed ever greater technology to be destructive towards one another and we developed ever greater technology to be able to derive what we wanted from the natural world so that we could feed our populations which were ever expanding and we kind of needed those expanding populations in order to feed these war machines that allowed our nations to survive so tell me like who which particular group of people or individual is the one who's responsible for bringing us to this point I mean, horrible things have been done, and we can point to people who have done horrible things, but within the context of all this, it's just like one horrible kind of situation forming and becoming ever more concretized. So getting back to this this thing that, you know, people on the right have this criticism of Marxism, postmodernism, that kind of domain, doing these power plays with language. It's like, okay, well... Maybe that's better than dropping a bomb. And on another level, it's like, well, of course, power plays are going to be made. And, yeah, we'd all like to maintain our individual autonomy, right? But, I mean, maybe we wouldn't, really. I mean, ideally we would. But if it means that we're going to have to, like, fight tyranny with pitchforks while they have nuclear bombs... I mean, basically, you know, yeah, the United States has, is bristling with weapons, right? Guns. But are we, I mean, who really believes that you can get the American population to rise up against tyranny? I don't care how many weapons there are. There's like no social coherency. It's never going to work. It's just going to be a shit show. And it is a shit show. So, you know, there'll probably be some people who go that way. But I don't think it's going to be a a real significant group. It might be. You know, we might turn into, like, certain areas where, you know, the government has kind of fallen apart and basically you have these regionalized warlords. I mean, that's something that's relatively common in the world right now. And it's uh, useful to the powers that be to have regions in conflict because it makes it easier for them to be able to just take what they want from the region. So it would make sense that 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 might occur here. But, you know, probably not for a while because the government is still extremely powerful. So... Fundamentally, I think uh, everyone's going to be offered some kind of a choice. Maybe it's some sort of a UBI in exchange for, I don't know, your weapons perhaps? <laughs> I'm not sure. But they're not going to give it out for free. They've made that pretty clear recently. And they're really kind of putting the screws on. So whatever deal it is that they're going to make, or that they're going to offer, um, it's going to require that, uh, that the population give up something in order to participate in it i would imagine that there's going to be a crypto involved in that it's kind of interesting that you know crypto it has this uh association with code breaking but it also has an association with the dead the crypt right so yeah it's definitely the death of something but, as, uh, as I was pointing out earlier, uh, higher organisms wouldn't exist were it not for the deals that were made between the cells and their neural network managers. So, it's not necessarily a negative thing. This is another thing that quite often, on the right, you'll hear people criticize uh, Hegel for the dialectic. As if like there were some sort of mendacious, underlying, and fraudulent aspect to it. From my point of view, like I, I'm not a student of Hegel, I don't know the details. But the basic concept, it's really not a technique to get power. It's an observation on the nature of all phenomena when an abstract is proposed, you know, you you call it maybe a thesis, right? It always results in an antithesis, in a negation. That's how this thing works. And understanding that that's how it works isn't necessarily an evil thing. You know in the context of a liberal, rational... You can't even use the word liberal anymore. (laughs) In the context of a rational, liberty-oriented people, the kinds of games that are played in the postmodern domain are evil. But really, it's just an observation on the nature of of phenomena. Uh, Basically on the nature of conscious interaction. And so it seems to me that if if the conservatives can't get their heads around it, they're going to continually be undermined by it. Because everything that's concrete is built upon the negation of some abstraction. That's how consciousness proceeds. It forms an idea and that idea is it's an abstraction and that abstraction is always incorrect so it's always negated by circumstance and by all the other abstractions all the other ideas and all the other forms of consciousness and through the interaction of all these things you get what's actually going on I mean it's Profoundly simple, really, but it's the most basic operation going on. because all of these interactions that we're having, they're interactions between consciousness. And so everything that's being put forth out here in this interwebby thing is an abstract. and you can see just how strongly they're all getting negated. And what is the concrete result? Well, it's this edifice of information. It's the reality of the kind of interactions that are occurring. It's the confusion within each of us as to what's real and true. It's the subject matter covered by the film The Social Dilemma. Okay, so I just got interrupted. So maybe at uh at 30 minutes, this this is sufficient. I've been thinking I should make these episodes shorter anyway. Uh, there is a part of me that would like to live up to the Radio Hour name, but it really doesn't matter, right? I was trying to think of a better word than hour. It just, nothing has quite the same ring. I mean, it's not a radio either, so there you go. I had a number of other topics in mind that maybe I'll just mention, and uh, that way I won't forget what they are. I've been referring to the trigram theory. I haven't really described it in any detail here. So I was thinking for those of you who haven't yet checked it out, maybe I'll do an episode to describe not only what the basic idea is, but also... Why I think it's significant and why, or how I came a, a, across it, let's say, kind of the history, as at least from my point of view. And I also have from time to time mentioned things about astrology, and I thought maybe an episode on that would be good too. Because what I'd like to do is to maybe lay the framework for the kinds of potential conversations we might have. Uh, on the meetings that I suggested in the last episode. So for those of you who haven't listened to that, I hope you'll consider signing up at Reality T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y dot substack dot com. You can just put your email in there, and that way I'll be able to send you information. You'll get notices about articles... These podcasts, I think also um, will show up, and I'll also be organizing these monthly meetings. I think I'm going to start in the in the new year, assuming that we get to that point, and there's still something to discuss. If you want to support the effort in some way or another, you'll get an invitation to these meetings. And the cheapest way to do that would be on Patreon. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month. And I think that the minimum on Substack is five bucks. So most people have gone for Patreon, and that's fine. I recognize that there are some people who really every dollar matters. So if you're in that category and you really want to be part of the conversation, shoot me an email and, uh, or some kind of a message one way or another, and I will uh, grant you a guest uh, membership. If you find any of this interesting, what I usually say at the start of the show, I'm going to say now at the end. Please uh, write a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the sentence I've been meaning to say that I keep forgetting to say. Uh, You know, give it a rating, all that stuff. And, you know, if you're on YouTube or whatever, do the like and the share, the subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Letting your friends know. Posting it to social media. Getting it out into the interwebby thing uh, is uh, helpful, perhaps. Maybe it won't be helpful. Maybe it'll actually be harmful. Maybe if this becomes more successful, I'll, you know, suffer some kind of unfavorable consequence. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't support it. Okay? So, there you go. 33 minutes, 59 seconds, 34 minutes. That should be good. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. listening we look forward to serving you again soon in the meantime remember turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home